0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to a Spotlight Minisode. Before we get into today's Minisode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Chrisula Economu, Taylor Nelson, LF, Candace Smith, and Rihanna Fafer for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. We also have two new ways that you can support the show. You can head over to Audible. Google Play Books or Apple Books and purchase the Krugersdorp Cult Killings by Jana Marks, which I narrated. Or you can get your health and beauty needs from King Online and get a 10% discount by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. We also have our amazing giveaway running with King Online, where if you purchase for 400 rand or more and use the TCSA10 code, You'll get entered into the draw to win your share of 2,350 rands worth of new release, true crime and crime fiction books. This giveaway is coming to an end very soon, so get your entries in now so that you don't miss out. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media, all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. I mostly use these spotlight minisodes to cover cases that are in the media at the time, but today I'd like to use this platform to discuss some updates in cases I've covered in the past. One of the most amazing things that's come out of the TCSA podcast is the community that's been created around it. It's not just a form of entertainment, and the podcast is making a real difference, and so are you and I want you to know that. Some of the updates I'll discuss today have occurred in part as a direct result of the cases in question being covered on the podcast. So please know that when you support the show, share the episodes, or tell your friends and family about the podcast, you are making a real difference in these cases. It's also been good for me to know that when I talk about people's consciences and memories being twigged at the end of unsolved episodes, that it's not just a pipe dream or some sort of theatrics. It's real, and it has happened. People have started to put two and two together in some cases, and they've started to come forward. Unfortunately, In some cases, I cannot specify what information has been produced, as it is still under investigation. But with regard to some of our missing person cases, new information has been uncovered in at least two of our coldest missing person cases, because someone listened to the podcast. You, true crime South Africa listener, yes, you listening right now, You are making a difference. I thank you, and the families of the missing and murdered thank you too. The most substantial update I want to discuss today is in the case of murdered police officer Leslie Saliers. I covered Leslie's case in episode 51. Leslie Saliers was murdered 18 years ago. In fact, next Friday, the 23rd of July, is exactly 18 years since Leslie Saliers dressed in his uniform for the last time and checked in for duty, as he'd done hundreds of times before, to serve the people of Tableview, Cape Town. On this day, however, Leslie would not return home. Instead, he would be brutally gunned down by a car full of criminals fleeing from a bank robbery they had just committed. A large part of the episode was dedicated to my discussion with Leslie's now adult daughter, Roxanne, about the impending possible parole of some of the offenders responsible for her father's death. Despite being under the impression that the several life sentences handed down would mean that these perpetrators would be in prison for the rest of their natural lives, Leslie's family recently discovered that this was not the case. And in fact, after just 18 years in prison and never actually admitting to committing the crime, the men responsible for Leslie's murder were being considered for parole. As you would have heard in episode 51, this contact from the Department of Correctional Services would set Roxanne's life on a sudden unexpected turn. Just as Leslie stood for justice in his life, Roxanne's apple has not fallen far from her father's tree, and she's refused to take this lying down. I'm grateful to stay in contact with many of the family members of Victims, whose stories I share on the podcast, and Roxanne has been no different. When I last spoke with Roxanne, and as you heard in the episode, She was struggling to get any information out of the Department of Correctional Services. She wanted to know where her father's killers were located, exactly when they would all have their parole hearings, and she wanted to know if the hundreds of letters that she'd collected from family, friends, and community members requesting that these offenders not be released had even been received by the right person. Roxanne just wanted communication, and although one caseworker from DCS was relatively communicative, the woman was unable to answer Roxanne's questions, and the people at the prison that the offender in question was being held at in the Eastern Cape were completely unresponsive. Recently, in the run-up to the 18-year anniversary of her father's death, Roxanne was able to give me an update on what had happened since that episode of True Crime South Africa aired. While I will keep the specifics of the contact and assistance as vague as possible to protect the person involved, Roxanne let me know that after hearing the episode, someone had made contact with her and offered assistance in connecting her with the right people in DCS and the parole departments in the Eastern Cape. In the ensuing weeks, Roxanne was put in contact with a few people in the parole department that were of immense assistance in explaining the processes that she could expect in fine detail so that she could prepare herself for what is coming. She was also provided with paperwork that she needed to complete by these contacts in the parole department That she had not originally been given the direct contact at dcs that roxanne had originally been completely ignored by was also suddenly but only briefly much more responsive when we ended off the episode roxanne expressed a few questions that she wanted answered by dcs and when she finally had the opportunity she presented these questions to the person she believed should be able to answer them. The first of these questions was how she could get her hands on a full copy of the judgment that had been signed by the presiding judge. The judgment document is not on safely and the copy she was emailed by another person was cut off and not complete. To this question, the DCS employee responded that he was unsure whether he could legally provide Roxanne with a copy of the judgment. Roxanne explained that she already had part of the document. Judgment documents are usually uploaded to Safley, except where there are minors involved, or in some cases of sexual assault. Neither of those instances apply to this case, so really there's no reason the judgment document should not be available to Roxanne. Three months after the conversation, she still has not received the judgment document. Roxanne's next question was whether the over 200 letters of appeal that had been sent to him had been printed and placed in the file that would accompany the offender to his parole hearing. The DCS employee honestly, told her that while he had received the letters, he had not started to print them, as he hadn't started to prepare the file for the hearing yet. Roxanne feels that this is fair enough, as a date has not yet been set, and at least he has now acknowledged receipts, which he hadn't before. Roxanne also wanted to know whether the offender in question here, Zolani Kumalo, or his co-accused, had ever admitted to killing her father or shown any remorse for the crime. Unfortunately, the DCS employee was unable to confirm this. I think it's important to remind listeners that Roxanne still has no idea who out of the five offenders that were present that day actually shot her father. So while this part of her journey has been sparked, by the imminent parole hearing of one offender, the work she's doing is not aimed at that one offender, as none of them have actually ever taken responsibility for the crime, at least not to her knowledge. Roxanne also wanted to know where the other offenders in her father's case were being held. This was a mystery we'd yet to solve when I first covered this case. The DCS employee in question told Roxanne that he believed two of the offenders were incarcerated in Pretoria. When Roxanne called DCS in Pretoria, even though she had prisoner numbers and full names, the department would neither confirm or deny whether the offenders were being held in their facilities. There are another two of the offenders, which Roxanne has been unable to pin down to a particular facility. The VOD or victim-offender dialogue is part of the parole process that must take place before the parole hearing is held. Of course, victims do not have to participate in this, and sometimes offenders will not be suitable for such a process. In this case, it has been recommended by case workers, and although Roxanne was initially in two minds about whether she wanted to participate she could confirm to me that she has now decided to take part. The purpose of the VOD officially is to open up channels of communication between the offender and the victims or victims' family members. It is intended to provide the victims with an opportunity to have questions answered that could not be answered at trial, and of course, It depends entirely on the offender's willingness to be honest, their acceptance of responsibility for the crime, and to some extent, their level of remorse. Unfortunately, in the way that it is currently structured, as part of the run-up to parole, many victims' families have expressed to me that they feel like it is something that will be ticked off on a form – and possibly play a role in whether the offender gets parole or not. So the next step, since Roxanne has agreed to participate, is to navigate the current difficulties in logistics that the country is dealing with around COVID, lockdown, and recent unrest situations, and to get the two offenders that are in Pretoria and the one in East London to Polesmoor in Cape Town so that the VOD can take place, with all three at the same time. In this way, the victims don't have to sit through three separate VODs. DCS has confirmed that VODs can only take place when South Africa returns to a level 1 lockdown. Roxanne clarified that it would not just be her family that would be invited to this VOD though. There are three attempted murder victims in this crime who were also present when the occupants of the vehicle began firing. Those three, all either current or ex-police officers, should also be given the opportunity to participate. The original caseworker that contacted Roxanne has been relatively helpful, at least as far as it appears DCS standards go. This caseworker is getting ready to leave DCS, but she has offered to stay on to facilitate the parole process on Leslie's case, as well as another case in which an offender is currently under consideration for parole, the Sizzler's Massacre. When Roxanne contacted her to find out about the attempted murder victims being included, she confirmed that they would now be required to trace these victims. This process would reveal yet another gap in the DCS system. When the caseworker said that she had gone to Tableview Police Station to try locate the attempted murder victims and had been unsuccessful and would therefore be reporting to DCS in the Eastern Cape that she'd been unable to trace the victims. Roxanne realised that DCS actually does not seem to have the resources or training to trace victims. So if the obvious attempt of your last place of work doesn't produce results, you may well be put down as untraceable. In Roxanne's case, if one of her father's colleagues hadn't still been working at Tableview Police Station when the caseworker went there that day, and happened to overhear her querying the contact information for Leslie's family, they likely would never have known that Zolani Kumalo or any of his co-accused were even being considered for parole. Realising that if she didn't help, these attempted murder victims would not get the opportunity to participate, Roxanne had no choice but to provide the contact details she had for one individual. She also managed to track down another victim's number for DCS. The victims then started their own search for the third attempted murder victim, and Roxanne found her on Facebook. So the three people that were, according to DCS, untraceable, were found by Roxanne Van Eck, the murder victim's daughter. These surviving primary victims of the shooting that day are just as entitled to this process as Roxanne's family, she feels. After all, they were there. They experienced the trauma firsthand. For some, it ended their careers as police officers. For all, the trauma has never left them. Imagine them not having been advised that these people were up for parole and just walking past them on the street one day. Just to show you the importance of the contact that Roxanne had managed to make with the parole board, one of the documents that she was not initially provided with, that she eventually received after pushing to make contact, is a form that when completed, means the parole hearing cannot proceed without them alerting her first. That is a vital document, and that should have been given to her right away. That should have been the first thing she was given to sign, but she didn't even know it existed. Roxanne says that despite the headway she has made, she still has many unanswered questions. Really, the only people in DCS that were willing to provide her with any substantial explanations were those in the parole department the actual DCS caseworker in the Eastern Cape, remains unresponsive, and she has only ever spoken with him over the phone. Despite requests for the caseworker to put his responses to her in writing so that she can have a paper trail, he has not done so. Roxanne doesn't know whether there will be individual parole hearings, or if they will each have their own. She doesn't know where those hearings will take place. The VOD will take place at Polsmore, which is convenient for the family and victims. But the parole hearings may well take place in the regions in which the offenders are incarcerated, which may mean that those that want to attend the parole hearings, and for Roxanne there is no question that she will represent her father there, They may have to travel to the Eastern Cape, and then Pretoria, maybe on two separate occasions. The DCS official from the Eastern Cape has gone back into radio silence mode, and despite Roxanne's repeated emails to gain clarification on certain questions, she has had no response. Besides the question about where the parole hearings for the offenders will take place, and when she is going to receive the complete judgment documents, Roxanne has also asked for the contact details of the case managers for the two Pretoria-based offenders, and she'd also like to know how long after the VOD has been completed she can expect to have to attend the parole hearings. In order to properly prepare herself for the VOD, Roxanne has also asked for information about the offenders, including whether any of them have actually admitted guilt, and if they have, which offender shot her father, and who shot at the other victims. Roxanne would also like to know what rehabilitative programs each of the offenders has undertaken while they were in prison, and how they fared in those programs. She'd like to know what their behaviour record has been like while in prison whether the offenders have undergone psychological counselling, and finally, if the offenders were granted parole, which areas of South Africa would they want to reside in? Those all sound like pretty fair questions to me, and information that any caseworker should really have easy access to. One thing that I mentioned in the podcast was that the offenders had received varying sentences from 16 to 66 years. Roxanne wanted me to clarify that she's not sure where this information came from, but it is actually incorrect. All the offenders in this case received three life sentences. The sentences run concurrently, so they would be required to serve 25 years before being considered for parole. But due to the fun-vague judgment, which impacts all offenders sentenced before 2004, those sentenced to life before 2004 are not required to serve 25 years before being considered for parole. They are required to only serve 12 years and 4 months. It is this judgment that has allowed the murderers of Leslie Siliers to be considered for parole at this time. As I mentioned in the initial episode, this parole consideration for her father's murderers has taken Roxanne on another path to try to ensure that this does not happen to more families. She started a petition to keep Zolani Kumalo, as well as his co-accused, in prison for their full sentences and she is also connected with two other people who are on the same road as her. Lee Fisser is the sister of Warren Fisser who was killed in what is now known as the Sizzler's Massacre. One of her brother's killers, Adam Wust, is now up for parole despite having been handed down nine life sentences at trial. Rob Matthews is the father of Lee Matthews, the 21-year-old girl that was kidnapped and murdered by Donovan Mudley in 2001. Despite Mudley receiving life imprisonment for murder, 15 years for kidnapping, and 10 years for an extortion charge, he too has benefited from the Funvake judgment and is now being considered for parole. These three people who have already suffered so greatly and should now be allowed to move forward and pick up the pieces of their shattered lives, have banded together to seek greater justice within our justice system. As Roxanne pointed out to me, these three people could not be from more diverse backgrounds and their murdered family members could not have been more different as individuals but they have been brought together by one thing, the injustice of justice. The major motive behind the banding together of these three is to get these cases in the public eye, because, as Roxanne says, they are representative of so many more cases that will still come before the parole board in the months and years to come. The trio want the public to understand why this is happening and what can be done to stop these victims being victimised by the justice system. Roxanne wants to be able to be a voice for those victims who don't feel that they can stand up against the system. Although Roxanne has managed to chat to members of the parole board, they cannot give her any information about her specific case until the file is delivered to them, which will only be when a parole hearing date is set. She has been told that once the parole board makes a recommendation, that is then escalated to Minister Ronald Lamola, who is responsible for making the final decision, as it pertains to so-called lifer offenders. Roxanne mentions an interview she saw on television with a representative from DCS, and the person said that when Minister Lamola took office, he promised that the families of victims would have a major role to play in determining whether offenders would be considered for parole. Roxanne says that she plans to hold him to that. Roxanne van Eck sounds exhausted when she talks to me, and understandably so. As I said in the original episode, it is completely ludicrous that she has to go to the lengths that she has, and no doubt still will, to get information that should be freely available to her. She expresses her gratitude to everyone that has shown their support for her and her mission, and underpins how pivotal the assistance she received from a true crime South Africa listener has been. Sadly, there is still a very long road ahead for her, for Liefasa and for Rob Matthews, as well as every other victim and victim's family that is having an offender come up for parole under the Funvake judgments, or really any other parole consideration. Although Roxanne has been able to make some headway on her own, most people would not have had the emotional or physical capacity to do this. If it's draining her in both those respects, what would it do to an elderly parent, for instance, whose child was murdered, if they were the only one left to fight for their loved one? Roxanne Van Eck is an unexpected warrior for justice, just like her father was, and I have assured her that I will be behind her every step of the way, and assist wherever I can. You will be seeing more on our social media forums about Roxanne, Lee, and Rob's work, and I hope that you will get behind them in the same way that I am. While this concept of having to fight for justice twice over may be far removed to those of us who have never lost someone to violent crime, it is not entirely impossible that one day you may find yourself in the same situation. This trio is fighting not only for true justice for their loved ones, but also for those that no longer have a voice, and for those that have been so broken by the system already that they don't have the strength to stand up. I will leave a link to Roxanne's petition in the show notes. Please sign it if you haven't already, and share it with as many people as possible. Keep an eye on our social media pages for ways that you can get involved, and also please keep Roxanne and her loved ones in your thoughts next Friday on the 18th anniversary of this senseless tragedy. I'll be doing another update mini minisode soon, with updates on a few other cases I've covered. But that is it for this week. If you follow us on social media, you would have seen my posts about new podcast projects that I'm working on. I'm super excited about this and look forward to sharing more details with you in the weeks to come. I'll be back next Friday with a full case episode. Until then, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.